Well, good morning. Hope everyone is doing well this morning. Go ahead and grab a copy of the scriptures if you have them. If not, should be in the pew backs in front of you and open to Mark chapter 6. Uh, if you're new with us, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. This is uh, my first week back after a couple weeks in Turkey. Thanks for your prayers. I, I thought about breaking out the old school slideshow this morning, but uh, I figured you would do what I did during the slideshow presentations and go to sleep. So uh, we'll hold that for a latter date. But uh, just to say briefly that my heart was freshly encouraged by the lostness of the world and the needs uh, that we have, the ways that we have to be involved in what God is doing among the nations and the heroic faith and trust of our missionaries who are scattered around the world. So thank you for the ways that you are involved in praying, giving, and going so that the gospel is proclaimed here in Greenville and among the nations. We hope that over the coming years, we have increasing opportunity to be involved in that. From our first fruits giving coming up in a few weeks, which will help us give for really the first time in the life of our church to our own missionaries who are here in our church and are getting ready to go to the nations to short-term trips that we have before us like Nicaragua coming up in just a few months and increasing plans for more trips in the future. You guys are a part of the gospel at work around the world, and we are quite thankful. I'm also thankful that the church doesn't stop when I'm gone. We have godly and faithful leaders in this church. Donnie and Hugh served you very well over the last several weeks as well as our staff and our pastors, you should be grateful that you don't uh, attend. You're not a member of a church that depends on one person to survive. That is not the case here, and we are so thankful for that. Don't forget that in two weeks at our family meeting on June 1st, we will officially appoint Donnie uh, Mathis and Jonathan Chastine as elders here in the life of the congregation at TCC. That will officially happen on Sunday night, I believe it's June 1st, our next family meeting. So please make plans to attend and to be a part of that special service as we continue to broaden the base of the leadership of our church as God sends us capable and qualified leaders. So we jump in this week to Mark chapter 6. Uh, I have a short text for us this morning. Let's begin reading in Mark 6. Verse 45, immediately he, this is Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go on before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when he saw them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them, and he said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So as we pick up a really familiar story this morning, we recognize that even from that last sentence, we're picking up a bigger story. And this is what preaching, as we do through books of the Bible, helps alert us to, that you're never taking a passage in isolation, but you're always piecing it into this larger story that Mark is writing as he, he's seeking to hold up Jesus as the Son of God. And he connects this to the story that we just heard about from Hugh last week, the feeding of the 5,000. So there's something about this story and the disciples' response that helps us even inform the story that we just saw last week. Now, just to get us in context with Mark's gospel, we've recognized at this point that Mark is writing uh, for us the shortest gospel. 
16 short chapters that are really quick, really fast-paced. He, for the most part, sucks out all the editorial comments that the other Gospels write for us. He's just telling you the facts, giving you fact after fact after fact. Immediately is the most common word in the book. He says it over and over again, even in the start of this text. He's given us a story after story after story, fast-paced, action-packed novel. No need for 24 when you've got Mark's gospel, all right? And this, is the, this plays really well to a modern audience. It's moving quick, and we have dueling themes, dueling tracks that Mark's running on throughout his gospel. One is to hold up Jesus as the promised Messiah who would faithfully fulfill God's promises. So on the one hand, Jesus is the Messiah who will faithfully fulfill all of God's promises. And on the other hand, people must respond to that fact. Okay? So Jesus is the Messiah who will faithfully fulfill all of God's promises, and people must respond to the fact that Jesus is the promised Messiah who will faithfully fulfill all of God's promises. And so on this second track, we see consistently people presented before us who have different responses to the Messiah. Some respond in overwhelming faith, quite positively. Some are almost, from the outset, predisposed to negativity towards the truth claims of the Messiah. And some, the disciples most prominently in that, seemingly get it at times and don't get it at times. We have these kind of fumbling, bumbling attempts by the boys, different parts of the boys even at times, that get it and they respond appropriately to Jesus as the Messiah, and oftentimes they don't get it. Specifically, the focus over the coming chapters is on the development or the growth in faith of these disciples, this inner circle that Jesus had gathered around himself that demonstrated the outset radical trust in Jesus, the type that would make David Platt proud, all right? They have a radical uh, single-mindedness, relinquishing all things and following after Christ, okay, on the shore. But then their seeming lack of understanding takes precedence over their radical faith. They stunningly lack understanding and faith throughout the remainder of Mark's gospel. This should give us, as modern-day disciples, great comfort, because in many ways the disciples' story is all of our biographies, who at times seem to get it and seem to humbly demonstrate radical faith in the Messiah, and at other times, if you're like me, are stunningly depressed by your lack of getting it. Uh, stunningly depressed by the fact that you're battling the same things over and over again. We see our own faithlessness and lack of understanding staring back at us in the mirror as we read the lives of the disciples. The clear expectation of the claim that Jesus is the Messiah is that people should live with radical abandonment and faith. We see this in weird places in the Gospels, like the woman with the issue of blood. We talked about there in, in that story that Jesus actually marvels at her faith, this seeming outside character. And then the main actors in the story, the disciples, they don't demonstrate this faith at all times. At the outset, it may be helpful for us to demonstrate the most prominent word that we'll talk about this morning, that of faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 helps us with this. It gives us a clear definition that the biblical authors will use for this concept of faith that's a bit mystical at times. Hebrews 11.1, 1, the author there says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I'm going to reference Hebrews 11 throughout the sermon this morning. I would encourage you in your own personal devotional times to cross-reference that text and study it in your own time with God this morning. The author there starts with this claim that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So 
at the outset, we would see that the word faith is used quite differently than the way we use the word. We use it kind of as a uh, mystical hope. I hope that something good will happen. The biblical authors use the word faith to denote fixed and steady confidence in a sure object of trust. Okay? So this isn't like an irrational hope wish, but it is fixed and steady confidence in a sure object of trust. You're all doing it this morning and sit, seating on those pews. You are demonstrating rational trust in a sure object, and it's supporting all your weight. Now, sure as I mentioned that, one of the pews is going to collapse this morning, right? All right? You demonstrate fixed and rational confidence in a sure object of your trust in your sitting on these pews. This would be the claim of the scriptures, that we would have fixed and steady trust in a sure object, and that object would be the person of Christ. The question for them and for us this morning that I'm, I'm seeking to answer is how does that type of faith become normal for disciples of Jesus? How does that type of faith become normal? Because the question that Mark's running at here seems to be the fact that that faith is abnormal for Jesus' disciples in Mark's gospel. They get it at points, and they don't get it at points. The question I want to ask this morning is, how does faith become the normal response? And I choose that word quite intentionally. By normal faith, I do not mean casual, flippant, or thoughtless. But rather what I mean is, how does faith become the usual and expected outcome, output, of our lives? How does faith become the usual and expected output of the life of a believer? Can faith work the way that muscle memory works? Think about this and any trained athlete or skilled musician. After many hours of planning and practice and intentionality, they do instinctively the things that most of us could never do, right? That's the thing that's stunningly frustrating about watching a professional musician or a professional athlete. They do without thought, naturally, rhythmically, their response to whatever their thing is comes instinctively, intuitively. It is the normative and natural response of being a basketball player, they don't have to think about a layup, right? They don't have to think about it. They don't have to think about the keys that they're hitting. It's just what happens. This is referred to in literature as muscle memory. Now, what we're talking about here is not that your actual muscles have a memory, but that your brain develops a memory based on rhythmic, consistent repetition over time. The question I want to pose for us this morning is, can faith become that for a disciple? Can faith become muscle memory for followers of Jesus? The danger is just like the danger of practicing a piano or shooting a free throw. We see this in professional athletes, basketball players all the time. If you, it doesn't matter, practice doesn't make perfect. Good practice makes perfect, Right? You develop bad habits, and they function in the same way. You develop bad muscle memory. Okay? So you hit the wrong key over and over again. You shoot a free throw like a five-year-old as an NBA basketball player, right? You develop bad habits, and they work their way. I'm convinced that the Church of Jesus increasingly has bad faith habits. We have developed bad faith muscle memory. And I want to ask the question this morning, can Mark 6 help us work good muscle memory of faith into the crevices of our lives? Let's look back at the beginning of the text immediately. He made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, and while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. I want to give you, present from the text, 
what I think are four keys to developing the muscle memory of faith in the life of the disciple. The first starts in these introductory sentences, 46 to 48. Mark makes some seeming passive comments that are clearly not the focus of the text. He dismisses the crowd, connecting it to the story before. He takes leave of them, and he goes up to the mountain to pray, which other gospel authors make a big deal about that scene. That's not the purpose of this text, but it is instructive for us that Jesus takes time away to go up to the mountain to pray. But the immediate question in this text is, how did the disciples get themselves into this scenario? Like, what have these guys done to get themselves on the sea again in a storm? Okay, and because we've been walking through the gospel, we know this isn't the first time. Okay, now if you're new to the scriptures, the immediate thought is they've done something wrong to put themselves in this situation. Perhaps it's just that the disciples are showing off, which Peter uh, of, of the crew is prone to do, right? Maybe they're just like, I'm bored. Jesus is healing some de- demoniacs and women with issues of blood. I just want to go flex my muscles and row on the sea for a bit, all right? Show Jesus how tough I am. Or maybe they've been disobedient. Maybe Jesus said, I want you to stay, and instead of staying, they actually said, nah, Jesus, we're going to go to this place, and they got in the boat and started rowing. I mean, this is true for us when we consider faith. Like, sometimes the things that we call fate or persecution are just dumb decisions, right? Let's be honest. Like, sometimes We want to baptize, we want to spiritualize really boneheaded moves that we make, okay? Not every storm that you find yourselves in is the result of the activity that we see Jesus doing in this text. Sometimes you just made a bad choice, and you got yourself in a bad situation. You tried to flex your muscles, you got yourself on the sea, you put yourself in this scenario. That's not what we're talking about here. Rather, here in the text... The disciples are on the sea in a storm, not because they are disobedient, but precisely because they are being obedient. Okay, notice that. Don't miss that. Jesus tells them to get on the boat and get in the water. He tells them to go to this new location. They are doing exactly what Jesus asked them to do when they find themselves in this place. And what happens? They find themselves in another moment of difficulty. A chaotic sea, impossible headwinds, and the boys are just out rowing. Going to a familiar place, the hometown of at least two of the disciples, John's Gospel tells us. Not a long row across the sea, but the boys are at it. We're told later in the text that Jesus comes to them during the fourth watch of the night. This is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. I don't know if you've been uh, on a boat deep sea fishing in a storm, okay? I don't like a storm at 3 p.m., much less 3 a.m., all right? All implications in the text would be that the guys have been out rowing by that point by, for at least eight hours. At 3 a.m. in a storm, I'm going to be mad. I don't care what the circumstances are, right? Can you imagine the conversation on the boat, amongst the boys at this point. They are beyond their strength and ability in a futile, seemingly futile, exhausting and potentially dangerous situation. And again, let me spin back to the reality. They are there at obedience to the command of Jesus. Now, at this point, it seems there is much easier work that they could be doing, right? I mean, Jesus, let me go disciple the demoniac right? Surely the woman with the issue of blood, she needs a church planted there. That's easy. Like, why are we going to a new place? You've already flexed enough, Jesus. You can stay here, but he is sending us somewhere else. So why are they on the water? Why do you sometimes find yourself on the water? And again, 
Don't run to bonehead decisions that you've made, okay? That's not what we're talking about here, but why do you sometimes, when you are obedient, doing the very thing that you think you're supposed to do, find yourself in a place of difficulty? Making headway, not making it very fast. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you intuitively know the answer to this question. Because the sea is the only place that our faith grows. Right? The sea is the only place that our faith grows. Jesus knows what you and I learn as a disciple of Jesus, that unless we are in a position of difficulty, our faith will never grow. For faith to grow, it must be worked like a muscle, and this will often require pain because, and this is where it gets really humbling and challenging for us, we do not instinctively choose faith-expanding situations. Do you? I don't. As a result of the fall and sin, my bent, as with yours, is always going to be towards comfort and control. Comfort and control. This is the real danger of the North American Christian life, is that it does not, by definition, put you in faith-expanding situations on a daily basis. So you don't choose faith-expanding situations. You drift towards comfort and control, and our context doesn't mean that because you're a Christian, you're in a faith-expanding context. This is really dangerous for us because we are instructed in the Scriptures that whatever, this is Romans 14, 23, whatever does not proceed by faith is sin. That the basis, Galatians 2.20, the basis of life is a life of faith. So if I drift towards comfort and control, and my context drifts towards comfort and control, how do I ever learn faith in Jesus? Like, I can become a master at learning to manage my own life. Think, of, think about the things we do, like managing our time managing our eating, managing our parenting, managing our marriage. We would all rather live a, a life in a week after week of normal, calm predictability. One of the authors that I read this week said this, most of what many of our Christian lives is spent doing is trying to fix ourselves and our problems so that we don't have to trust God anymore. Think about the reality of that claim. Like how much you can do just daily that requires absolutely no faith in Jesus. And so, in this text, as well as in your life, the sea is actually a gift of grace. And we don't like to hear this. I don't like to hear this. Largely, grace is not an escape from difficulty. That's to come. That's future. But largely for us, grace is expanding faith in difficulty. Largely it is expanding faith in difficulty. Paul Tripp says this, God will take you where you have not chosen to go on your own to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. God will take you to a place that you did not choose on your own to achieve in you what you could not accomplish on your own. He continues, what we need in America is a theology of uncomfortable grace. If you, are right now, if you find yourself right now going through a situation that is difficult and unexpected, that you did not choose and you really don't desire, Remember in this moment that you are there not because God has forsaken you, but because God is loving you. You're there not because he has forsaken you, but principally because he loves you. This is idea number one of how normal faith is developed. Normal faith expects difficulty as a necessary means of grace. 
Developing a muscle memory of faith lives with an expectation of difficulty as a normal and natural means of grace. So, I am not caught off guard. I am not stunned when difficulty comes, but rather, as that really weird passage in James invites us to, right? I consider it all joy, my brothers, when I encounter trials of many kinds because I know that those things are working towards a really good end. And I would never get to that end if it were not for those things. So I'm going to choose really strangely to consider those things joy. Okay, I'm going to consider those things joy. Here's, here's the way I, I tend to think about faith. Let's imagine for a minute that your current, you find yourself right here in your current situation. The way I've always considered faith is that faith is something like the path that I walk to get from my current situation to the desired outcome. Okay? Current situation's over there, faith is the path, and I arrive at the desired outcome, which for me most often is a change of that current situation in the way that I want it. Right? I think what this text encourages us with is that the biblical picture of faith is this, that my current situation is here, the path is God's gift of grace, and the actual outcome, the place I get over here, is expanding faith. That expanding faith is the destination. And that means that over here, it may look like what I want, or it may look exactly the opposite of what I want. But the outcome's not really what's important. What's important is whether or not God grew my faith in that experience. You guys tracking with me? So we're what this, the path is God's gift of grace. I'm in a situation that propels faith in my life, and over here I'm living with this ever-increasing, ever-growing faith, and the, the outcome's kind of a, mm, I don't know. Maybe it goes good, maybe it doesn't go good in my estimation. But what God's after is my expanding faith and not my, my own understanding of the desired outcome. Okay? So normal faith expects difficulty as an expected means of grace. Uh, secondly, next, next little, little verse here. And it was about the fourth watch of the night, so we've already commented we're 3 a.m., 6 a.m., somewhere in there. He came to them walking on the sea. And then he meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they were all terrified. Idea number two, normal faith, and again, by normal, I mean the predictable and expected response out of a growing disciple's life. Normal faith, trust in the unseen presence of God. Normal faith trusts in the unseen presence of God. So at this point, Jesus has been away praying. Presumably, we would, we would assume there that he's been praying for his disciples in this moment up on the mountain. And in the previous scene where we have this chaotic, storm-filled situation, where has Jesus been? He's actually on the boat with them, right? So it seems like we're getting this increasing release of the disciples, Previously, he's been on the boat. Now, he's been asleep, but he's on the boat with them. Okay? He's right there. There's this felt presence, and now he's at a distance. He's unseen. We're not told in the text how he saw that they were making headway painfully. We're simply told that he knows. So, while he is unseen by them in this moment, he is no less present. He, in fact, never leaves or forsakes them. And we're not really told in the text what he desired for them to do in the scenario. Like, was it their lack of faith that was hindering them from making headway? Or should they have cried out to him earlier in the story? Like, would this whole scene have stopped at hour two if they just yelled, hey, we're hopeless and helpless? That's not Mark's point is giving us that type of explanatory comments, but rather we see that after a period of difficulty, Jesus makes himself known. 
he makes himself visible to them. And he comes to them doing something that is stunningly godlike, right? We just kind of read over it. Comes to them walking on the water, right? Classic. He walks on the water, revealing himself to these guys that are seemingly growing in their faith. And then Mark gives us this commentary. He was going to pass by them. What? Like, is this the Tom and Jerry episode where Jerry's kind of creeping past Tom, hoping he doesn't wake up from his slumber? Like, is Jesus just trying to beat them to Bethsaida? Right? Hoping that they don't see? Rather, most theologians think, and I think this is the best explanation of this, that the language here is what Jesus would do to his Old Testament people, specifically to Moses, when he would pass by them, fully revealing his glory. So the language is not that he was kind of creeping past, hoping they wouldn't see him, but rather he's making this ark around them, fully demonstrating, fully manifesting, I'm here, so that they would all see his glory. I mean, if Jesus, if all he had wanted to do here was, the, was to remove the difficulty, he could have just spoken to this storm from the, sea, from the shore, right? I mean, it's easy. He sees it. He knows about it. He didn't have to walk to it to say, oh, they're in a storm. So he could have just as easily stood on the shore and said, peace be still, it stops. But rather, he wanted to reveal himself to them. So he came and passed by them. You might say, he came to them walking on the sea because he desired to manifest himself to them. Our English loses some of that language. He is not removing the difficulty from the disciples, but he is showing that he is present in the difficulty with the guys. In these periods of expanding faith, you and I need to see and hear this as well. Many of us have been around the church long enough to to know this intellectually, but this is one of these that takes years to get from your head to your heart, doesn't it? That in the midst of difficulty, Jesus has not forgotten or abandoned you. I mean, think of the things on a day-to-day basis that make American Christians act like atheists, right? You miss your parking spot. God, where are you? Right? Now I've got to walk in the rain for 12 more steps. You get cut off in traffic. God, have you forgotten me forever? It's going to take me two more minutes to get to work. Perhaps you are here this morning And you need to be reminded that in the midst of your difficulty, God is there with you. And perhaps, and maybe more importantly, you have been specifically put in those situations to be reminded of the greatness of God. You've been put in those situations to be reminded of the greatness of God in ways that you would not comprehend apart from those situations. So normal faith, trust in the unseen presence of God. He's not abandoned or forgotten you. Verse 49, we already read this text, but let's read it again. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Now, at this point in the story, I do exactly the same thing I do when I'm reading through the Old Testament of the Scriptures. And I get one king that obeys God and the next king that comes up and disobeys God and seems to shake the etch-a-sketch on all the good things that have been happening. Okay, Good king, bad king. Good king, bad king. And after I've done that a couple times, I'm like, come on, boys. Like, for real. One of you, just two in a row, get it. All right? I have the same just instinctive response to the guys at this point in the text. Come on, guys. Like, panic all over again like it's the first time you've seen this? It just happened. They should not be surprised at Jesus walking on the water. In fact, it's kind of lightweight lifting for what Jesus has done up to this point in Mark's gospel. 
his past faithfulness should be a, a sure and steady encouragement to them. Think of the things that they have seen just in the six chapters up until this point. And not only that, but consider the fact that we have evidences of the Old Testament faithfulness of God. In many ways, these similar stories cram together. The crossing of the Red Sea and the feeding of the Israelites with manna. The same scenarios pitted together in the Old Testament. God feeds and provides for his people. Then he puts them on this journey that's going to require them faith, that's interacting with water. Some suggest that the disciples are even crossing the sea here with the 12 leftover baskets of bread sitting between their feet. Right? They've just come off of the feeding of the 5,000 story. And here they seem stunningly amazed that Jesus could do this. Paul Tripp contrasts the disciples' amazement with their lack of faith. He considers us, he asks us to consider the distinction between amazement and faith in Jesus. His picture, and we've all seen this, is uh, going to a touristy place. Let's consider Myrtle Beach for our illustration. And you're walking around and you see the slingshot ride, right? Okay. Typically out on a boardwalk somewhere, this rubber band contraption that harnesses people in and straps, straps them in and just slings them out over the Atlantic Ocean, right? While they giggle with joy, right? Now, if you see this for the first time, your heart is awakened with amazement. That is unbelievable that that works, all right? That we can catapult people out over the Atlantic and they bounce back without dying, all right? Tripp says, it is an altogether different thing to strap yourself into that contraption, right? There we see the amazement is simply something that explodes our mental categories. That's bigger than anything I can think of. That's stunning. That's great. You can do that all day to Jesus and not have any faith in him. Do that all day to Jesus and not have any faith in him. That's stunning. That's great. I'm glad he's worked that way in your life or in my life. But my day-to-day life gives no indication that I'm strapped into the harness. But rather what normal faith is based on, idea number three, Normal faith remembers the past faithfulness of God. Normal faith remembers the past faithfulness of God. Stephen prayed this way as we began our sermon this morning. That the past faithfulness of God is the catalyst that moves you from amazement to faith. Consider in your own life, where do you find yourself consistently growing, growing frazzled in areas that God has already shown himself faithful in. You are playing out the scene of Mark 6. Consider for a moment these two questions. Where has God already demonstrated his faithfulness in smaller areas or in similar areas? I think this is the way God develops muscle memory in our lives. He, for many of us, in our young, fledgling attempts at faith early in our Christian life, he demonstrates, I'm faithful in a small way. Some of you confront really big things early in your lives. For most of us, we confront really small things. God is faithful to you. He'll show up. He'll provide that which you need. And that faithfulness in small areas or, secondly, in similar areas. So God provides the finances that you need to make this small decision when you're a fledgling college student that in similar ways should build muscle memory of faith that God at 40, when you have a family and a wife and kids, can provide to make your mortgage payment, right? In small or similar ways, 
God develops muscle memory in our lives through his past faithfulness. This is why with increasing age should come increasing growth in faith. Okay. And this is where I want to lean into you that have a little bit of life on you. Okay, Say that nicely. Okay. Have a little bit of life on you. Is that what we should see from the mature ones of our church is with increasing age comes increasing ability to live by faith. I think the opposite is actually true more often than not with my kids. Uh, don't, don't try this at home. Okay, bad parenting technique. Don't report me to an agency after this. We'll stand on the truck, on the back of the truck or on the side, and I'll tell Hudson, jump to me, right? And I'm standing, I mean, not even the distance of the first pew. You guys would really tell on me if I did that. All right, I'm standing right here. Hudson, he's four, or going to be four tomorrow. He jumps with reckless abandon, right? Almost no fear. Just flying out into my arms. Avery, she's two years older, little bit less willing to jump. Put Corey on the truck, all right? It's normally not happening. She's gotten older, and therefore she's gotten more cautious. The danger is that the same thing could happen in our Christian lives. That rather than muscle memory of faith developing and us flexing our faith muscles when we're 60, we get more cautious. We learn that bad things happen, that you can make really good choices and decisions to be obedient, and it backfire. And so we play it safe. You are not alone, and you can trust the past faithfulness of God, and this is going to have to be the gospel that you preach to yourself every day if you want to live with growing faith. You have a frustrating parenting day with the kids, and you walk into the room for the 39th time for discipline, you are going to have to remind yourself that God has been faithful in the past and he will surely complete the good work that he started in my family. You drive home after your boss has just said, we don't have a place for you anymore. Somebody overseas has made decisions that affect your job and you're driving home trying to figure out how am I going to tell my wife and provide for my family? I don't know what's next. You're going to have to preach a gospel that says God has been faithful in the past and he will surely not leave me in this moment. If it grows to a big doctor's diagnosis and you get that phone call and you have that word, you are going to have to, in that moment when you hang out the phone, preach the gospel to yourself that God has not abandoned me in this moment. He has surely been faithful to me. And even if the outcome doesn't mean I'm free from that health issue, even if it doesn't mean the cancer is taken away, even if it does result in my death, if it expands my faith, it is for my good. It is for my good. And I have to preach that gospel to myself or I will never grow in faith. Lastly, but immediately he spoke to them and he said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got in the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is another place in this text that I think our English waters down the language. It doesn't help us see fully what is there. He says the most common and frequently used command in the Scriptures. You know what it is? Do not fear. Do not fear. Common and frequently given command by God in the scriptures. It's the refrain on the angel's lips every time they appear, right? Don't be scared. Don't be afraid. But then he says in our versions what appears to be, uh, what is, it is I. The actual language there of the text, he says, I am. The, the, the passage reads, have courage, I am, do not be afraid. Perhaps the language there is, I, I'm the one. I'm the one that's been journeying with you. I'm the one that you've seen do these miracles. The one that's shown up in the past. I've been faithful, so take courage, don't fear. 
I think this language is pregnant with much more meaning than that. This language, first given by God in Exodus 3 to Moses, I am, is the name of the covenant faithfulness of God. It's his revealed name to his people, I am. I have always been, I am currently, I will always be. It's the covenant name of God. The one on whom all the covenant promises rest. And get the scene, Jesus at 3, 6 a.m. in the morning steps into the boat and says, I am. The covenant fulfiller just showed up. Previously, he said, peace be still, and it stopped. Here, his mere presence causes the storm to stop. I am shows up, and it all changes. The last idea here in the text is that normal faith grows as a fruit of grace. Normal normal faith grows as a fruit of grace. We seemingly don't see that in this passage. Notice how it ends. They were utterly astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Unless you're zoning out at this point in the sermon, this is not a compliment, right? (laughs) This is not good news. These boys that should have been growing in their understanding and their trust are utterly astonished. They didn't get it about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Similar to putting Play-Doh outside in the sun, the human heart doesn't respond in softness and in faith to these developing situations, becomes hardened. It's not useful. He says, this is the concern for the disciples in the text. They don't have faith. Their hearts are hardened. We all know people like this, and it's easier to say we know people like this than to say we are like this, right? whose over time their hearts become increasingly resistant to the fingerprint of God. And this, if you and I are not careful, is what will happen the longer we walk with Jesus. We will become increasingly satisfied in ourselves and resistant to change, We will daily and instinctively make choices that pursue comfort and control. When God puts us on the sea of difficulty, we will swim to the shore to try to get out. And we will not allow the situations and the circumstances of our life to develop faith in us. We will grow satisfied with our own maturity, thinking we have reached the, the pinnacle of our faith at 32 years old, rather than seeing growth and change as the normative process of a developing disciple. Let me challenge you here this morning as we close. If you are not consistently seeing difficulty met with growth and life transformation change in you, That is flash engine light on the dashboard of your life that there is a massive problem. There's a massive problem. If you look back over the last 10 years of your life and say, my faith in God has basically been flatlined, that is a telltale sign that you are not good soil. Good soil produces fruit and transformation. So I must ask as we close, is there anything distinctively faith-requiring about your life right now? Is there anything distinctively faith-requiring about your life? What, about, what are you doing right now that requires faith? And for all of us, this is going to look different. 
your marriage, your personal discipleship with some guys in this congregation, your small group leadership, a short-term mission week in Nicaragua. The opportunities are endless, but are you doing anything that requires faith? And again, remember my caution at the outset. Don't think, well, yeah, sure, I made 12 dumb decisions this week, and I'm scared to death. That's not what we're talking about here, okay? Are you making life choices that are consistently putting yourselves in faith-requiring situations? Consider the call this week we were talking, or while we were in Turkey, we were talking about the lack of men serving among the nations. And the missionaries told us that the IMB had done a study and found that most Christian men, most young men, serve, pastor, lead within 100 miles of their mama. They can't get guys to leave their mamas. They can't get guys to move to Turkey and plant and pastor churches because increasingly the masculine culture in America just wants to stay close to mommy. Is that true of you? Men, is that true of you? Are you leading your home in such a way that requires consistent acts of faith? If not, would you use this morning to repent? To affirm the reality of what Romans 14 says, that anything that you're doing that does not require faith is sin. That without faith, as Hebrews 11 tells us, it's impossible to please God. Faith isn't a prayer you pray to start your Christian life, but rather it is the daily choices you make in your Christian life. So this morning, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, I invite you to faith. If you're here this morning and you do know Jesus, I invite you to faith. If you're here this morning and you're 60 and you've walked with Jesus for 40 years, I invite you to expanding faith. I invite you to the kind of faith that the young 20-somethings of this congregation would look at and say, I want to be that dude when I grow up. Not because he's got a big house and a well-put-together family and money in the bank, but because he lives with reckless faith. And I want to be like that when I get old. If that's not true of you, would you use this space this morning? to cry out to God that he would grow your faith. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us faith. We, we need that. We live really comfortable and predictable lives, uh, increasingly. And we, we need to see ourselves on the sea more often than we do. We need to not run to control when we so often do. We need to learn to live instinctively by faith. And that's going to require the sea, and that's going to require difficulty. And we're going to say this morning that we're going to count that as good because of what it's doing in us. And so we ask in this space that we have to reflect this morning that you would give us grace to consider our situations and our circumstances in light of the truth of your word. If we're living safe and comfortable and predictable lives, would you prompt our hearts this morning to radical faith? If we've grown discouraged or thought you have abandoned us in the midst of the sea, would you remind us that I am is here? And would you build a church here that is exemplary in our faith? We ask it for the fame of Christ.